0: Hi everyone, this is Yin and welcome to Growth From Failure. I wanted to create this show to highlight extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up, but with a slight twist. I'll have conversations with people from a variety of professions, from investors to entrepreneurs to educators to athletes, because I enjoy hearing a really good success story from any discipline. But I wanted to view their story more through a lens of struggle or hardship and even failure, Because for me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow aren't from the wins or triumphs, but from the setbacks and defeat. So instead of reviewing their highlight reel with all the success and accomplishments, we'll talk about some of the bloopers that includes the mistakes and the rocky roads, which can be glossed over, but oftentimes more impactful to their mindset and success. I hope hearing their journey inspires you to not fear failing, but motivates you to reflect to keep learning and ultimately to keep growing. I tried to
1: fit in. I tried to be something or someone that I wasn't. And I think really I was underestimating my own strengths and trying to manage too much to perception and
0: what other people thought of me. This is the story of Kelly Brennan, head of ETF at Citadel Securities, where she is responsible for the firm's ETF trading business globally. Before that, she was head of Goldman Sachs's ETF trading. And before that, she was at Susquehanna, where she started her trading career. A little fun fact about Kelly, while she was at SIG, she became the only female specialist at the firm on the New York Stock Exchange. It's pretty awesome. I've known about Kelly for years, as my husband and her worked together, and she and I actually went to the same college at UC Berkeley, but unfortunately, hadn't crossed paths until recently, although I wish it were sooner. And her story, I think, is something that will be made into a movie one day, because you'll hear on this episode, Kelly is a small but mighty, five foot two, ferocious competitor, that kind of like David versus Goliath her way to succeeding on Wall Street's trading floors. And on this episode, you'll hear a lot of really amazing things about Kelly. And I'd love to get your thoughts after you listen to the interview because she was one of my favorite folks to have a conversation with. She's clearly a very driven and focused person who constantly strives to get better. And she admits one of her biggest failures early in her trading career was trying to be something or someone that she wasn't and underestimating her strengths. I have to say, I don't know many people as exceptional as Kelly. And I'm grateful to have had this conversation because I feel that it really leveled up my thinking and my pursuit to cultivate what she calls an impactful personal board of directors. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kelly Brennan. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So Kelly Brennan is the managing director of Citadel Securities, where she leads the global ETF business. Prior to joining Citadel, she was at Goldman Sachs for 13 years, where she led the US ETF trading and sales business. And before that, she started her career in the equity and derivatives trading group at Susquehanna, where she rose to the ranks and became the only female specialist on the New York Stock Exchange. All those amazing things. I'd love to hear if you really were focused on sales and trading and all that, but let's really kind of rewind it a little bit and hear where you grew up. So I grew
1: up in a beach town close to San Diego in California. It was very much a a resort type town. It was uh, all of 70 degrees and sunny every day of the year, nearly. And it was a fantastic place to really explore and learn how to connect with the outdoors, as well as very stable and, and nurturing place.
0: So how did you choose the college you went to? I'm imagining the idyllic Southern California lifestyle. I'm not sure how that transitioned to New York sales and trading environment, but how was the graduation process to going to college?
1: I really had very little direction when I was leaving high school as to exactly what I wanted to be when I grew up and where I wanted to end up. I was extremely drawn to staying in California, and UC Berkeley jumped out as a fantastic public education. I also applied to Brown in Rhode Island and was choosing between moving to the polar opposite of what I had experienced in in Southern California, or really staying somewhat closer to home base, but still far enough away that I could assert my independence. So I ended up going to Cal and had an interesting path there. I was a runner in, in high school and was thinking of competitive running in college and ended up getting very bad shin splints. Uh, I pushed myself so far that it ended up turning into stress fractures. And so my plans to run were not really going to become a reality. Uh, So when I I got to to Cal, I I figured I would go down one of two paths, either pre-law or pre-med. And I ended up pursuing both with the intent that by my senior year, I would magically figure out what I wanted to do, be a lawyer or a doctor. In the meantime, I wanted to do something athletic and one of the drawbacks with running was that it was really more of an individual sport. So I thought about what I could possibly do and walked on to the rowing team, the women's rowing team. I started on the lightweight team, which was for folks that were a little more novice and frankly lighter weight than the, than the uh, larger team, and quickly realized that I wanted to really make it on the Division One varsity team. So I pursued a limited career in rowing and then decided I was going to become a coxswain. So for those that don't know what a coxswain is, it's somewhere between a jockey and a coach, someone who sits in the front of the boat and comes up with a way to not only motivate and direct people on the water in this very grueling, very intense sport in which you're essentially repeating the same motion over and over But also, you know, there's some strategy involved as to wind conditions, steering conditions, and it's actually much more technical than I ever appreciated prior to really engaging in the sport. So I fell in love with rowing and over the course of two and a half years or so, made my way from completely novice, not knowing anything about rowing, to being the varsity coxswain and competing at a very high level at NCAAs. And did that affect your kind of pre-law, pre-med route and path? So it didn't. It was a good test. I think Berkeley and a large public university is very good at teaching people at a young age how to be resourceful and how to juggle priorities. I had to weigh workouts at 4.30 in the morning and then again at 4.30 in the afternoon. I had a part-time job and I had two majors to pursue. So I was in a constant juggling match of trying to balance everything and prioritize my time extremely efficiently
0: given the rigor of
1: everything I was pursuing.
0: Well, you sounded like a complete underachiever in college, and <laughs> I'm just kidding. But when you thought about kind of your career and your next move, when did it switch from the pre-law, pre-med route to much more of the investment, kind of finance route?
1: My senior year, I still didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up, so I uh, was was debating: Do I pursue medical school? Do I join the Peace Corps, or do I do something completely different? And at the time. I was friendly with some of the older rowers that had moved on into their careers after graduating. And one of them said, hey, Kelly, you should really check out trading and finance. It's fast paced, it's competitive, and you have to multitask. And I thought, well, let me see what it's about. So I started interviewing at a couple of trading firms, and New York is really the hub in the U.S., for trading. So most of the firms were present in California, but looking to hire for their East Coast base. And I interviewed with a firm called Susquehanna, which I eventually joined and really passed some amount of screening of probability questions and sort of cognitive biases, testing, and was very fortunate to land a job at a firm that was recruiting at, at the time 95% of their class from East Coast
0: to Ivy League or highly technical schools. One of the things I know about Susquehanna is their interview and recruiting process is really rigorous and very competitive. And I remember hearing a few friends talk about some of the questions and the probability questions that they asked. When you were asked that, did you Were you intrigued? Were you like, this is interesting? What was the thought when you went to the Susquehanna interview?
1: It was a very non-traditional interview, which did pique my interest. It was much more about how you think, how you apply logic, a good amount of thinking outside the box, And really different. And what it offered was the potential to learn something completely out of the realm of what I knew could be possible at that time. So in addition to sort of stretching myself in in a way that I thought I could work well under pressure and remain competitive, it pushed me into a realm where I really had to think creatively creatively. And understand not just the technical side of problems, but also behaviorally, how are other people going to respond to similar problems and factor that into, in a sense, a multivariate
0: equation of behavior. And so the entering class that you joined for Susquehanna, it was mostly men. It was 55 men, if I understand, and not many women, like a handful of women. Did you notice that? Were you aware? Was that not something that was on your radar?
1: When I joined, it was very apparent that I stood out and that I was, I felt like a bit of an outsider. Part of it was I was from a West Coast school and most of the incoming class was from the East Coast or had lived on the East Coast for college. The second was, yeah, I was a woman at the time, the trading floors were very much alive and So the traditional hire for most of the floors, I would say really outside of Susquehanna, the company I worked for, were very tall, athletic men because that's who survived on the floors. That's who was visible. That's who was aggressive enough to interject and successfully win trades. So not only was I a five foot two woman, (laughs) but... I was from a call it non-target school
0: and I looked and felt different than everyone else. So then to compensate then, but also to compete with physically bigger people, do you then attach stilts or like how do you stand apart and still obtain trades and win in a hyper-competitive environment?
1: It took me a little bit of time to figure out exactly my place. I think when I started work, I was more focused on how do I fit in? How do I assimilate? How do I not stand out? And I struggled quite a bit with that in my first six to 12 months at Susquehanna. Most of the guys would talk about sports or talk about different interests that they had that were separate from mine. And I realized at some point I can't learn everything that they know about sports, but I can compete on my own terms. So I could lead with content in terms of thinking about problems slightly differently than most of my peers did, organizing my trading style in a more disciplined way than most of my peers. And from that, I decided I have something unique here. I can actually play to my strengths rather than worry about what I don't have, I should focus on the things that I do have and where I can contribute.
0: And could we unpack that a little bit more? So how did you create this distinct style and really rise to the ranks to become the first female specialist on the New York Stock Exchange?
1: So at the time I was at Susquehanna, they had acquired a bunch of smaller firms that were mostly mom and pop type firms on the New York Stock Exchange. The way to obtain a spot or a a specialist position on the New York Stock Exchange, you had to physically buy a seat. And that dates back to the early 1800s or mid 1800s. So Susquehanna had bought a number of seats and then had to figure out what are they going to do with this venture? Is it profitable? Is it not? So they sent me, along with one other trader, out to New York to the floor to make sense of, can we succeed? And that was a really challenging experience, both emotionally, physically, and mentally. Physically, it was a place where you had to stand in a two by two foot square for eight to 10 hours a day and you couldn't leave. If you were sick, if you were tired, you had to push through. So there was a fair bit of physical stamina required for the job. From a emotional mental standpoint, I worked with folks, predominantly, if not solely men who were at least 20 years older than I was. So it was another case where I simply didn't fit in and had to figure out a way to connect with them. So I decided I would do what I knew best and organized the trading book by taking all of the different trading products or stocks that the other specialists didn't want to trade. So I ended up with a hodgepodge of very what was considered unfavorable stocks at the time and said, okay, let me try and make sense of this. Let me try to apply a data-driven approach to trading at a time when the world was moving out of humans interacting with orders and becoming more machine-based.
0: At what point did you think that it was kind of time to move on or potentially transition to another company?
1: At some point, the floors became less attractive because of a number of factors, combination of shifting regulation and electronification, frankly, of roles of players on the floor. So I started to look around, and not only was I feeling like I needed a new challenge, that I had mastered something that I thought was quite challenging and difficult in the beginning, but then had plateaued. And that coupled with this sort of two-year view that the floors were at a true inflection point drove me to look around.
0: What were your options as you started thinking about that, leaving Susquehanna?
1: It was a very difficult decision to leave Susquehanna. I had grown up there. They had taught me to trade. I was privileged enough to work with some very good traders who were very patient and willing to teach. And I worked with a fantastic cohort of people, of bright, innovative, and unique people that I didn't encounter until really recently when I've taken on a new role. What I thought about was, what am I missing by being at Susquehanna? And I decided I wanted to see a different part of the ecosystem in finance. At the time, Goldman Sachs stood out. They were a thought leader in terms of investment banks. So I thought, well, let me at least take a tour of an investment bank, see what roles are there, and then decide if it makes sense to
0: move in and, and learn something different. Did you look at other banks or was it just Goldman primarily on your kind of first choice list by leaving?
1: I figured I might as well go to the best or try to go to the best. So I submitted my resume online. I maybe, I don't know how many people get hired by submitting <laughs> their resume online and the world has certainly changed, but I submitted my resume online and was picked up by an internal recruiter and really had no idea when asked, what roles are you looking for? What would you like to do? I presented myself as this is what I've done. This is what I think I can do. I know how to trade and to help me figure out how to navigate within the organization. So I interviewed with several desks at Goldman Sachs and ended up going to a completely different area that wasn't related to stock trading, wasn't related to options trading. It was a very different area, which is called the prime brokerage. And that's essentially a bank within a bank servicing hedge funds. And I learned a tremendous amount once I started at Goldman digging into details for a market that actually looked very similar to what I had experienced in the past, meaning it was on the cusp of modernizing, but hadn't yet. So I could dig in and understand inefficiencies and try and capitalize on those inefficiencies in a way that other competitors were not contemplating. And it allowed me to kind of stretch in a different way than what I had experienced going from a firm of 500 to 1,000 people at SIG to a firm of 30,000 like Goldman Sachs. How long were you at Goldman? I was at Goldman close to 13 years, which sounds amazing to say because it, it really did fly by. And I think part of the reason it went so quickly is I was sort of constantly uncomfortable in a good way. I was able to learn. I was able to move around. I was in a position where I was given a lot of responsibility. And as I was given that dug in and then got more responsibility, and I was also able to move around. It feels like even within Goldman, I had a new or different job every two or three years. So I was able to really kind of learn different facets of the equities market, all
0: under the same roof. I mean, it's quite an accomplishment because I don't know many people who rose to the ranks so quickly and at a hyper-competitive culture like Goldman. At what point did you, kind of similar to Susquehanna, Susquehanna, who had an amazing pedigree and reputation, feel the same about Goldman, where you felt it was time to maybe transition there? Did you feel a little too comfortable? You had mentioned almost liking the feeling of pushing yourself to feeling uncomfortable. But at what point did you feel it was time for the next challenge?
1: Yeah, I think that's true. Every couple of years, I felt like I had some plateau and wanted to see something different. And I realized when I made the move from Goldman to Citadel Securities, I had found a product that I really liked that covered this tremendous breadth, which is ETFs or exchange traded funds. So an ETF is a product that trades like a stock, but really represents a portfolio of stocks underneath it. And so by trading this one product, like the ETF on the S&P 500, you're actually trading all 500 stocks underneath. And so if you look at what's, Interesting, in the evolution of ETFs, the breadth has grown tremendously, which means that there's an ETF on nearly every product in the world, whether it's the Turkish lira or natural gas futures. So the breadth of that really gave me this huge landscape to cover and felt like I could dig in and understand multiple products by understanding this one mechanism. So with that in mind, I had picked a product I liked and at Goldman felt like I wasn't really going to achieve what I wanted out of that product if I looked two to three years forward. So I was in a very good place and it was comfortable and interesting, but I wanted to really take on a much bigger challenge and figure out how can... I, with an elite team, become the best, become the preeminent player in the space. And because I didn't think that was going to be achievable at Goldman, it really drew me to a firm like Citadel Securities, which sets these kind of stretch goals on how are we going to live up to this ambition of truly being the best in the market.
0: It's interesting as you described that, the components you talk about in terms of all the technical aspects involved in trading ETFs is very similar to how you described being a coxswain. There's kind of one product or one focus, but there's all these other technical things that you think about, whether it's the wind conditions, the steering conditions. And it sounds like you love how complex the puzzle is of looking at kind of the global ETF market, which is just fun because it shows how hyper-competitive you are (laughs) across all these verticals. And so one book that I really enjoyed is a book called Defining Decade that talks about how impressionable and malleable and really important the period of your life is between kind of your late teens to kind of late twenties. For you, it sounds like that period was surrounded by competitive, whether it was rowing in college or whether it was at Susquehanna. How do you feel about that in hindsight? Do you think that you would be a different person if you weren't surrounded in this environment and this ecosystem that you really gravitated towards? I'm just curious if you look back how different that could have been.
1: That's a great question. I was always pretty competitive. board games in our household were a tough topic because inevitably <laughs> a board was getting flipped over or someone was ending in tears <laughs> in- inclusive of my mother or father that uh, <laughs> that the the game hadn't gone in their their favor so I think from a young age, I really liked winning and I really liked the satisfaction of competition. And I sought it out in really any form that I could, whether it was sports or games or schoolwork. What became Amplified is... Really, why I'm still in trading after nearly 20 years is you have an instant scorecard, and it's your constant both struggle and reward to figure out why was I wrong, What failed? Was it my process, or was it just bad luck or a bad outcome? And so I think the combination of growing and learning how to work as a team. And from a trading perspective, having this way to prove success on a continual basis daily or several times per day really had brought out a part of my personality that, that I enjoyed and found quite fulfilling.
0: That's incredible. There's a quote that I refer to quite often on the show, and it's, you can't be what you can't see and for you there really weren't that many women on the New York Stock Exchange there weren't that many key leaders um, kind of managing directors at a female level at Goldman Sachs and certainly doing what you do leading the ETF business and now certainly at Citadel Securities how have you thought about your career in a male dominated profession and in an industry and i know that you'd mentioned before you really using your unique lens and seeing it in a different way and and, and adding value that way but How do you feel now looking back at your career, how unique that was?
1: So I will say that things have changed over the past 15 or 20 years. When I started, it was an extremely male-dominated space, and you really had to assimilate. There was no concept of other. Now I think there's a larger appreciation of the other. I still, clearly we have a ways to go given that the other is still considered an outsider. But I was very fortunate throughout the course of my career to have both good mentors and good teachers, and frankly, good managers. I had managers who took a chance on me and gave me responsibility and really valued or judged me based on my content, which was fair, rather than their personal affiliation with me. I also had a couple mentors, one in particular who was a woman who was a couple years ahead of me at Goldman Sachs and rose the ranks very quickly to become partner. And had I not had her along with other mentors, I would not have been able to survive a very grueling and taxing environment. I think having a cohort of women like I had at Goldman, both peers and folks more senior who were truly looking to pull people up or specifically women looking to pull other women up was fantastic. And so in that spirit, I've really tried as hard as possible to pay it forward and spend time with women who, who are struggling with what I struggled with at different points in my career, whether it's not being the one who was asked to go to drinks with the rest of the team or struggling with when to have a child or how to come back after having a child. I try and spend the time to understand and comfort people and tell women that they're not alone, which I think makes all the difference in and of itself. Do you think
0: about career growth or kind of next goals for you professionally?
1: I'm really excited about this role I've taken on as of um, nine months ago at at Citadel Securities. It's an opportunity to build and be entrepreneurial and work. I think when I step back and think about what I really enjoy about my profession and, and my job it's being part of a cohort and being part of a team and winning together. I know that sounds maybe more simplistic, but I think if you unpack it, there's a way that you can succeed by leveraging everyone's unique perspective and being willing to hear a voice of dissent, which doesn't always happen. So, as it stands now in a, in a really good place because I get to build with a team that's very talented, very open and everyone really wants everyone else to succeed. That said, I, you know, looking around, around the next corner, I not only want to become sort of the preeminent player in this space. I want to think about how can I be more of a disruptor? How can We think about the market, turn it on its head. And one thing that's come up quite recently is this interaction between human and machine. So exactly what part do humans play in the financial market? Where can machines help humans become more efficient? And how do we really push that to capture some of these current inefficiencies and essentially collapse them so that the market is that much more efficient and that much more scalable than it is now?
0: Oh, I think that's so interesting. One of my favorite kind of quotes or references is Gary Kasparov, the chess player. He was asked, and I'm going to butcher this, but he was asked conceptually, what's better, man versus machine? And I think every you know AI bot says, obviously, machine, and certainly in the game of chess, which is purely focused on the skill-based talent of it. And he said, actually, what is best is machine plus man. And I thought that was just really fascinating. I think what Citadel Securities has is the ability to have the technology component, but also the u- unique lens of a woman who I think will really kind of change that on its head quite a bit. And so, looking at the the data that you can, but also adding the overlay of your qualitative judgment. So I'm excited just to see where your career continues to go. I mean, we haven't talked about one important thing, which is kind of the the, <laughs> the name of the show is failing, and it sounds like you've had an amazing career, and it's just completely. I so respect every path that. You did with each of those companies. What have you failed at? I'm sure there's a lot of these mini failures that you have, but if you can share with our listeners what has been one of the most impactful or memorable failures that you've had, whether it's personal or professional.
1: So from a professional standpoint, I have certainly failed plenty. I've had trades that I was overconfident on that have gone extremely poorly. (laughs) I have at times made decisions that have not panned out exactly the way i thought they would if i think about the couple really tough periods of my career and what i would do now should i have the opportunity to replay it it goes back to my first 6 to 12 months at sig where i tried to fit in i tried to be something or someone that I wasn't and I think really I was underestimating my own strengths and trying to manage too much to perception and what other people thought of me. So I often tell people worry less about what others are doing around you, which is really tough in a competitive environment where everyone wants to be the best and and succeed it's actually pretty difficult to not look around and see what your peers are doing but i think to the extent that i led with content that i that i you know was able to dig into and understand technical details of what i was doing be very thorough and leverage that rather than worry about interpersonal dynamics. That served me extremely well. The other component which I wish I had and still wish I continue to do more of is network. It's super important to build a board of directors of people that you trust. And those people you don't haphazardly meet or see. So to the extent that I could learn from someone who, who, who was either in a different field entirely or a different area that I wasn't overlapping in. That I've learned much too late, but now has served me much better in terms of thinking creatively and really stepping out and understanding what's possible that I didn't even consider.
0: I love that concept of a personal board of directors. I might just copy that, but when you think about that, and I like how you you had mentioned that it's not just singularly focused in finance or investments, then do you proactively come up with different sectors or industries that you feel would allow you to be more creative within trading? Or how do you think about which would be more helpful in kind of an interdisciplinary approach for sales and trading?
1: I try and think about, part of it's frankly driven by my interests. So there are plenty of use cases actually in medicine, where there are a lot of inefficiencies that are ripe for either automation or for more a different approach than what's currently being exercised. Uh, So I think part of it is just gravitating towards my interests and being curious and learning about different types of things. It can be pretty difficult to leave the world of finance because my husband is also a trader. And in New York, being the hub of finance, it's actually often difficult to find people from other professions. So frankly, in my circles, I crave the opportunity to meet people <laughs> who are a bit different or think differently. And it, it can come from any school, whether it's a physicist or a, a poet, I find it really fun to talk to people who are, are doing a lot of different
0: things. Love that. Who or what inspires you?
1: I have a couple people and organizations that really drive me. One is I could not have succeeded and withstood a lot of the failures that I've had without having a good partner and so my husband has really been a great sounding board and there are advantages and disadvantages to being married to a trader <laughs> but one advantage is you speak the same language you understand emotionally what it's like to go through a tough period in trading so that has been a tremendous support for me the other is it's really fun to see Uh, I have two young kids, and they're at an age where it's sort of the time of wonder. And so they're just so curious about the world. And so that keeps me motivated to think creatively and see things from a different lens. And then the third thing is, when I set out, I was considering when I left Berkeley, potentially going to the Peace Corps and helping people less fortunate than I've been. And I'm on the board of a nonprofit called the Fistula Foundation. And the intent, it's helping some of the most marginalized people in the world. It's helping women in very, very remote and poor areas of the world with a very specific postpartum surgery that can be life-changing. So I had the opportunity actually to visit Kenya recently and see the field work and meet the doctors, and they're doctors who have dedicated their lives to helping these women, and it's truly amazing work, and it's really inspiring to see these women who have been at the edge of contemplating suicide, turning their lives around because of one very simple surgery that corrected what they were suffering from. So if I think about the bigger context of what am I doing and why am I here, I try and contextualize it with there are ways that I can think about bringing what I know to help other people in a very different way than I would have expected.
0: How did you hear about that foundation?
1: So funny enough, Nicholas Kristof is a columnist for the New York Times, and he tends to write a lot of articles Op-ed pieces focused on women and women's education and largely in developing countries. So he and his wife wrote a book called Half the Sky about many different women initiatives and nonprofits globally. And I read the book cover to cover. They actually came to Goldman Sachs to speak and promote the book. And I read it cover to the cover and In the footnotes, actually, at the end of the book, there were a number of charities that were listed. And so I started just going down the list and looking at, okay, what do these charities do and how do they operate? And this particular organization stood out as small enough that I could have a big impact and also extremely efficient, meaning dollar in is very close to dollar out the door to help. So, I connected with them, and over the years ended up investing more and more
0: time and effort into the organization. That's incredible. So one thing I have to ask is we've touched upon your most memorable and impactful failures kind of personally and also at the professional level. you also mentioned your mom to two young kids. How do you balance it all? I'm a working parent and I don't do it well. I lose sleep and I need a lot more moisturizer to even look a little bit fresh, but you really <laughs> seem to manage it all and one of the things my listeners really enjoy is, is hearing the process, if there is any, to tease out or you know how you do it. And so there's that saying, you can have it all. My saying is you can have it all, but not at the same time because I would lose my mind if I tried to be perfect at every component, whether it's motherhood and uh, marriage and friendships and relationships and daughter and sister and all that. How do you do it? Is there secrets to your time management?
1: That's a really challenging puzzle that I have yet to figure out. But what I will say is, It's required me to be extremely shrewd about how I prioritize. Ultimately, it is impossible to literally be two places at the same time. So I have to trade off where I am at a certain point in my career, what competing priorities I have, and ultimately be very self-aware and conscious of the choices that I'm making so that I don't look back and regret how I made those choices. So practically what does that mean? When my kids were very young, my priority was making it home to see them before bedtime. And so I would have to force myself to lock my computer, leave whatever I thought was a burning fire at my desk and literally run home to see my kids, and even if it was just for five minutes or 15 minutes, it was time that was a sanctuary to me, not only to unwind and maintain some semblance of balance, but also important that I had some consistency that I demonstrated to my kids. So I think for everyone, whether you have kids or not, and if you have certain interests that you need to maintain to feel some semblance of well-roundedness or balance, I think it's really important to take the time to reflect and figure out exactly what you want to prioritize. And it may not be consistent seven days a week. It may not be consistent for months at a time. But I think if you, or what I've found is if I'm able to checkpoint, okay, here's what I consider a priority at this moment, given the circumstances, I'm able to weigh it and live with no
0: regrets. You'd mentioned kind of personal directors before. And then prior to that at Goldman, you had a pretty meaningful amount of mentors or sponsors that helped you and that you learned from. At this point, you are a senior woman in, in the firm and also in your career. Who do you still learn from?
1: So I think there's a large opportunity to learn from the newest people that I bring in. Actually, we're well into summer now, and every year, whether it was at SIG or at Goldman or at Citadel Securities, there's a new crop of interns that come in, and they're so eager to understand the markets, and they actually come up with amazing questions that challenge status quo or even just give me pause to think, you know what? there isn't an obvious solution to what you're asking. So I tend now to take the time to listen to people and especially those more junior that I feel like may bring a different dynamic to solving a problem. And then the other benefit I have is I work for an amazing leader at Citadel Securities who's a truly brilliant mind and so having him as a resource is tremendously helpful. The CEO of my current firm is actually a fellow UC Berkeley grad and has been fantastic for how young he is at having the maturity to see how businesses have evolved and where he can add value as opposed to where he can leave me to be autonomous and figure things out on my own.
0: There's so many things that I love about your career, about your personality, about your drive, about your curiosity. But I think one of the most refreshing things is that you work in a industry that's known to be zero-sum game thinking. And what's really amazing with this conversation and what I feel about your general mindset is you find collaboration across disciplines and verticals to be so much more expansionary that that's the best part. I think traders and sales folks generally think, how do I get a bigger slice of the pie for myself? And you think conceptually, how do I make this pie bigger so that everyone gets a bigger slice? And I think that it's such a unique way to think. And I could see why Citadel Securities recruited you and they are so lucky to have you. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you very much.